Well, thank you, thank you for being here, and thank you for giving. And you are here on a very special weekend. We are welcoming today special guests that are changing not just one country. I went to one country, Uganda. They're helping to change the entire continent of Africa. I have been asking them and asking them and asking them and trying to get on their schedule and trying to get, they're so busy. And finally, God has brought them to us today. And you're here to enjoy John and Cheryl Easter. They're amazing people. We're glad that they're here. Now, we're not going to hear too much from Cheryl, but we do want to make her feel welcome. Cheryl, would you stand up? Come on, give her some love. We're glad that she's here. She's a big part of the team. And then uh, Dr. John Easter oversees uh, over 300 colleges and training centers throughout Africa. His mission is to empower the national church, to raise up church leaders in Africans led by Africans. That's the key to a good missions movement. And he's going to tell us about what's going on in Africa. And I want you to receive him with love. And I want you to give him the greatest, great, come on, the greatest, come on, bless him. Here he comes, John Easter. Here's Johnny. Wow. It is wonderful to be here this morning, to be at Church of Hope. And let me just first by saying, begin by saying how much we absolutely love Pastor Scott and Darla, aren't they amazing? The unique gifts, the incredible heart, and we have become just uh, so affectionate toward uh, them as friends, the vision they have, what they've done here, and just their heart for both your community and around the world, including in Africa. So thank you, Pastor Scott. We love you, my brother. It is wonderful to be here this morning, and I'd like to do two things primarily. The first thing I would like to do is give you a 30,000-foot view of what God's doing in Africa today and to hopefully bring an update and report about just the move of the Holy Spirit in a place that many times we wonder if there is any hope. And the second thing I'd like to do is transition then, and I'd like to spend just a moment reflecting between you and me this morning in regards what is it that should motivate us to truly align our lives to have significance within our community and to the nations beyond. But first, let me begin with Africa. Africa. If I was to show you a map of this amazing continent, like the one behind me, you may not realize it, but you can put all of the United States, China, India, all of Western Europe, you can put Australia on top of Africa and you still have not covered its landmass. In fact, it takes me as long to fly from Cape Town, South Africa, at the very southern tip, all the way up to a place called Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso, which isn't nearly north of the continent as it takes me to fly from New York to London. This is one massive continent. The scope, the breadth, and it is a mysterious continent. And the diversity is just as amazing as its commonalities. So, for example, there are 1.2 billion people on this continent, made up of 54 nations. 1,500 languages are spoken, including French and Portuguese and English. And there's also German. But there's Kiswahili and Chichewa and Tonga and Tumbuka and Lingala and More. What's fascinating about Africa is is that it is a place that has an incredible amount not just to receive but to give back to the world. 
But for most of us in this room, that's typically not our impression of Africa. You see, even from the time we're young, we are taught to think of Africa with a certain lens. I remember being in elementary school and opening up based on a mandate of my teacher to open up to a chapter that was primarily a geography lesson. And at the very top, there was one word, Africa, in bold font. And the very first line of the paragraph of that chapter was, Africa is known as the dark continent. And in my mind, I began to think at such a young age, why do they call this place the dark continent? I mean, after all, does the sun not shine as brightly there as it does in our own hemisphere? But as I grew up and we began to make a transition of ministry nearly 20 years ago and raised our children in Africa, we came to understand why the Western world has a stereotype an image of Africa as the dark place. And if you think about it in some ways, well, that stereotype is reinforced for certain reasons. I mean, think about it. You look at the nightly news, you read articles and papers, things online, and if you think of the endemic poverty, social injustice, human trafficking, Ebola, issues of famine, genocide, political corruption, Constantly, these are the primary stories and the narrative that we hear about the continent of Africa. And before long, we began to see it as everyone else has taught us to see it. But let me tell you something that you often do not hear on CNN or watch on Fox News or read online. And that is this, that as I stand in front of you today, the dark continent has seen a great light and that light is Jesus that there is no other place right now as I stand in front of you, no other place on the planet where Christianity is growing faster than in Africa today. And over 2,000 years of redemptive history, we are now beginning to see a move of the Holy Spirit upon Africa where they again are not just receiving the gospel, but they're now beginning to understand that they too share part of our own obligation to be able to give the gospel to the rest of the world. This is one of the most fascinating times that we have seen. I mean, just think about these numbers very quickly with me. Just in our own movement alone, in 25 years, we've grown from 2.1 million adherents that are loosely affiliated to over 23 million as of this month. That is exponential growth. And among those, this reflects over 83,000 local congregations like the Church of Hope in villages, townships, and emerging cities all over the continent. I would say that is an amazing thing to be happy about. Amen? Isn't it remarkable? Absolutely remarkable. And you have something to share in that. You see, because Church of Hope for many years has invested in Africa, you have planted seed in Africa, and now that seed is germinating spiritually, and it's bringing forth amazing fruit. And that is why I so enjoy and have the privilege of leading a ministry called Africa's Hope. Because you see, despite all of the growth today, there still remains a large challenge in front of us. Number one, with such an emerging, rapidly growing church, you can imagine that in the midst of that growth, it's very young and there's a lot of abusive practices and teachings. And so you end up needing what we call spirit-empowered, biblically trained leaders who we believe really are the hope of Africa. You see, think about it this way. If you did not have Pastor Scott 
and your other pastoral team here, can you imagine if they were not healthy? Can you imagine the impact it would have upon Church of Hope and your health as a congregation? And then the implication upon the wider community here in Sarasota and beyond. And that's exactly how it happens in Africa. If you can resource and you can help to educate a young man and woman in Africa who is called by God to plant healthy churches, those healthy churches in village townships and cities also have a redemptive impact upon their communities and before long you have healthier communities. And that's not rocket science, that's just the biblical algorithm. Can you say amen? amen. I want to just allow this to be illustrated through one of my students in this video just briefly. His name is Emmanuel. You helped us to resource him. He's been trained in one of our Bible schools, which now numbers over 356 training programs across the continent, 21,000 men and women a year being resourced and trained in these programs. Can you say amen? And when you see Emmanuel's story, you will understand the significance of investing in the lives of men and women who are incredibly special to God and to their own communities. Let's play that. In Malawi, my home, the warm heart of Africa, home to 18 million people and 26 people groups. The wind of the Holy Spirit is moving here among us. is to have a healthy church within walking distance of every person. I am Pastor Emmanuel. I studied at Bible school and then planted this church. All of these people can tell a beautiful story about how God changed them. The gospel has affected everyone. We are eager to tell others how Jesus is the way to God. Lives are changing. Our communities are changing. Everyone should have a church they can walk to. And by God's grace, we have made a good start. So many churches already, but still so many dark places that are not reached. Many more churches are needed. To plant churches, we first need pastors. Many are willing to go and preach, but we cannot send them without ministry training. Reaching the unreached of my country is worth it. Yes, one church can transform a community. I have seen it. So many villages and tribes still need to hear about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? And Emmanuel is among 21,000 others just like him. Young, emerging leaders who have a heart for their people. Heart for their tribes, for their clans. So that healthy churches, just like Church of Hope, can be planted in those communities and touch the families just like your own family has been touched by this community of faith. I think that's an incredible vision. And together, I want to say thank you for partnering to help us do that. You know, often... 
many times I look at my students like Emmanuel and they go into very resistant, very difficult places. Some of my students have not returned. They have given their lives for the sake of the gospel. Their stories will probably never be known to the wider public. No one will write about them in Charisma or other magazines. There's probably no biographies that will tell their story. But it's because of them that we're beginning to see the growth that we see across Africa. And many times I'm asked, what is it that motivates these young men and women to do what they do and give their lives for the gospel? And I think that that's a question that really is relevant for every one of us in this room. Because in different ways we are called as followers of Jesus to align our lives, position our affections, our resources, our gifts, our personalities in a way where God can use us to have an impact both locally and globally. So for a moment I would like to speak about mission and motive. What is it that truly should motivate you and me to engage our lives with God's redemptive purpose which he is already fulfilling in a world because he invites us to do so. Now why God invites us, I don't know. But we do know that the scriptural mandate is very clear that God loves and invites his people to be part of the redemptive process of embodying the values and the ethics in the societies in which he places us. To allow our lives, as imperfect as we are, to be a blessing for his redemptive grace to flow through so that others can come to know Christ as you have come to know Christ. In scripture there is this concept that theologians speak about in Latin and they call it the imago Dei. It means the image of God. It's so profound that it speaks to the intrinsic worth of all human beings. What's amazing about this is, is that you can see this concept emerge from Genesis to Revelation throughout scripture and it emerges with force and power at redemptive moments in people's lives. It has emerged in your life, whether you're aware of it or not. And it inspires me, and it makes me want to worship. But the problem that I have, and perhaps you have, is that we move beyond the moments of inspiration like in an environment like this this morning, because when we walk outside of this service and we encounter the world around us that has fallen and wounded and disillusioned and fractured, we've come to understand, not just from scripture, but through experience, that that image has been warped, it has been marred, it has been twisted, so that when we look at humanity, it is oftentimes difficult to see the image of God in other people. Is that right? And before long, if we are not careful, we give in to our experience and our experience is transposed upon what we know to be true scripturally and then our attitudes and our actions are affected and we don't engage the world as we know we should. Because now we're skeptical, now we're suspicious and we're jaded as well. So how we engage the world around us has now been affected for the worse. So what is it that truly should motivate us to ensure that we are engaging as God would call us to engage? I would say there are three primary motivators that emerge out of what we know from this concept. And the first one is what I like to call value. Value. 
You see, if it's true that every single person, every man, every woman, every child is really made in the image of God, then that means that they are the object of his love and desire to save. That means that everyone is included, no one is excluded. And you see, if that's true, that means no matter my nationality or my ethnicity or my culture or my, ge my geographical location or the language that I speak or my gender or my age or what I've done for good in life or what I've done for, ba and for bad in life and whether I'm conscious of it or not, because I'm made in His image, He loves me and I'm the object of His love and desire to restore that image through His Grace, value, value. You see, value allows me to look through the lens differently. It allows me to see the world as God sees it, to engage as God would have me to engage it. Because what I've learned is, is what God loves, I must love, and what God values, the church must value. Value. But if value is important, the second motivator may be more so. And this is what I like to call capacity. You see, I mean, really, man, if it's true that every single person is made in the image of God and therefore we're all the object of his love and desire to save, whether we're even aware of it or not, then it also must be true that every single person has been uniquely created to have ability, the capacity to embrace the love of God and be transformed by it. And if that's really true, that means it doesn't matter what my nationality is, my ethnicity, my culture, my geographical location. has nothing to do with the language that I speak. My gender, my age, what I've done for good in life, what I've done for bad in life. Because I'm made in His image, even if I'm not even aware of it. He has given me the ability, the capacity to reach out and say yes and be transformed by his gospel so that my life now reflects what he intended originally for me and I find meaning. Capacity. I mean, because if that's true, then you see, and it doesn't matter whether I speak to Chewar and Tumbuka or Ngoni, or Kiswahili, or More. It doesn't matter whether I end up eating Ugali, or Nsima, or mice out in the field in Malawi with the hair just singed on them, or whether I suck the head of a weird creature by a tribe down in Louisiana and by some of you here in Florida. Because I'm made in His image, He has given me the capacity to be transformed by His grace. Hallelujah. Amen. I mean, come on, let's just be real, right? And let's lay our cards on the table. Why in the world would you even come here this morning if you didn't really believe in capacity? I mean, why waste our time? Why turn on the lights? Why go through worship? Why give in the offering? Why respond? Why pray a little more? Why do all of this if we really don't believe in capacity? Because if we don't believe that truly you can be transformed, that you can truly be changed, that perhaps I and 
everyone else, if we don't really believe that, there will be self-limitations as to how much we involve ourselves in the life of others. Because if I don't really believe that you can truly be changed and you can really be transformed no matter who you are and what you've done and your background. If I don't really believe that, then I'm probably not going to move out of my comfort zone and truly engage and invest and be concerned about the world around me. But if I believe in capacity, I'm willing to do whatever it takes, not only individually, but collectively as this community of faith, to be able to truly give ourselves to seeing our communities transformed by the power of Jesus Christ and communities around the world because of capacity. You see, capacity is what allows you to walk across the street in your neighborhood and to continue loving on that individual that seems to be jaded to your Jesus and doesn't want anything to do with your gospel. The person on the factory floor, the area in your school halls and in your class. For those of us in this room who have children or grandchildren that have abandoned the faith that we hold so dear, you don't give up on them. Why? Capacity. God's created them to respond if only they will. But they can be changed. That is why we go to Calcutta and we hold children in our arms and we help to feed them and resource because they're too malnourished to feed themselves. It's why Emmanuel and hundreds of our students, thousands of them going to areas that you cannot imagine and put their lives on the line for people to understand the story of Jesus because they've never heard it, because they believe that they are valuable and they have capacity. It is why we do what we do in this room. That is why we're here today, to align ourselves individually and corporately to make a difference here locally and globally. Capacity. I have a student. His name is Riaz. We met him several years ago when we had moved there nearly 20 years ago in Malawi to begin what we called an intercultural studies training program that was equipping students from over 16 nations across the continent, including some Americans and Canadians. The program was growing. It may have been the most profound season of our life in regards to how we were impacted by some of the most devoted men and women we have ever encountered. Riaz was different because he wasn't from Africa. He was from Pakistan, and two of his friends came and studied in the program during a certain term. For three years, they went through the entire program, only returning home to Pakistan to see their wives and children that they had to leave behind because of the lack of finances. And they would come nine months out of every year, devoting themselves, studying hard. What's amazing about them is, is their devotion, their heart, their passion, their humility. When Riaz graduated, he went back to Pakistan to this large southern city. He was reunited with his wife and two children, extended family. He spent six months with them. And after that six-month period, he took his wife and two daughters, got on this train, went two and a half hours north into this very resistant, remote area that was highly populated. And by train, walked by foot several kilometers. He received permission to live in the area by some of the Islamic elders, but it was tough. 
There was persecution. They were marginalized. They were not treated well. There were threats, but they remained faithful. And they began to love on that wider community, moving from village to village. And within 18 months, over 200 people for the very first time came to know and encounter the love of God through Jesus Christ. And they were changed. Capacity. And what was interesting is they continued to disciple, love, reach the community. They rented this old lean-to of a building. Men would sit on one side, women on the other, children in front, mats on the floor. And they began to grow in grace. And I remember that during this season, I was speaking at a missions conference in Miami. And I walked off the platform and moved towards the taxi outside the building going to the airport to fly back to Africa. And my, my phone began to buzz in my back pocket and I remember taking it out and looking and a string of text messages began to just flow in to my phone. It was another one of my students. He was South African. And I cannot tell you his name because he's presently serving somewhere in the Middle East. And he said, Dr. Easter, you should be aware. And before long, my heart was just breaking because something had happened to Riaz. And what had happened is, is these men in the village had formed a mob. And mob are scary things. I've seen them. I've encountered them. You cannot reason with a mob. And some of them ended up coming into the church area, becoming violent with the people inside, kicking them to the right and to the left of them until they came to the front, took Riaz, threw him on his back, took him by his legs just to humiliate him in front of his people, dragged him out on his back. Can you imagine where a larger group of men outside were waiting and without explanation threw him in the midst of these men where they began to kick him in his back and his gut and his head until blood began to flow and it ended up mingling with the dirt on that ground, if you can imagine, and began to cake on his body. And after some time of brutality and the mocking, they finally dissipated and walked away and left him laying there. And only two of his men had the courage, just two, to go back and retrieve his body, thinking he was dead, to bury him. And the others had just ran for their lives. In that congregation, and can you blame them? And when one of them reached down to pick him up, found him still breathing, put him on his shoulder, and they tried to go undetected kilometers back to that railroad station where other members who had hid his wife and two children brought them. Then they accompanied them back to the south two and a half, nearly three hours put him in a hospital where Riaz stayed for over 60 days. And when he was released, by the end of the first week, he took his wife, his two daughters. <clears throat> he got back on that train, two and a half hours to the north, the same depot, got out and walked back in the foot where they are still there to this day. Why in the world would Riaz and his family be willing to do that? I mean, maybe he's emotionally unstable. But the truth is, as Riaz said, he said, if 
200 people in an 18-month period can truly come to Jesus if we, if we stay. Perhaps the whole village area will come to know Jesus. Capacity. And there are people that God has placed in your life, right here locally where you live, in your various areas of giftedness and vocations and just living life. And you don't have to worry about walking into a region where that kind of persecution is waiting for you. But what is it, honestly, that keeps you from aligning your affections and attitudes and being intentional about engaging the world around you to have impact, knowing that every person that God places in your life to be instrumental redemptively toward them is all based because God has given them the capacity to respond. But a value and capacity are important. The third motivation is probably what it's all about, and I like to call this significance. You see, because if it's really true that all people are made in the image of God and therefore they are the object of God's love and desire to redeem, and therefore, all people, whether they're aware of it or not, have the capacity to exercise what God has already placed within them when they hear about his love and grace and to really be changed by that no matter who they are. Then it also means that every single one of you in this building and every single person that is made in his image, which is every person, has been uniquely designed to be significant in this life, not just in the life that waits for us. Because God created you not just to be saved from something, He has saved you for something. Let me illustrate it this way. Let me show you these very special people standing beside me in this photo. This is George Chawaya, Michael Kaliwa, Arnold Bonda, Reuben Imdala. Do you see Reuben on the very end in the striped shirt? These are individuals who are very close to us. My children today call these men uncle. Reuben. On the end there, his last name is Imdala. Do you know what Imdala means? It means he was born to the Yao tribe. 1.3 million of them in Southeast Africa. Highly Islamic. Folk Muslims. And not only that, he was raised within a clan in his tribe to take leadership from his grandfather and father as a religious leader. And Reuben said that there was a moment in, in my life when I was a young man that for the very first time there was a person that took interest in me, began to show compassion. They were a follower of Jesus within our community, began to love me, reach out to me. And he said, despite my actions and the way that I would respond, they continue to reach out to me. And he said, in this one moment of encounter, he said, this person began to just simply share the story of Jesus and how it had changed my life. And at that moment gave me an invitation to know if I would be interested in receiving Christ. And he said, in that moment, and I quote him, my heart exploded. 
And he said, I was changed. My life was transformed. Reuben was discipled in the faith, called to full-time vocational gospel ministry, came to the Bible school that we helped to establish, earned his BA, then his graduate degree. He has planted four churches, one of them that runs over 600 members. He now teaches at the Bible school where we were at that has 400 students every single term that are being equipped for ministry, multiplying himself. I would say that's significance. How about you? Isn't that amazing? Do you see Arnold Bonda in the red t-shirt? Arnold, well, he's always smiling like you see him there. But there was a period in his life where he wasn't smiling. Arnold was raised, as we say in Chichewa, to be a Sanganga. He was raised to be a witch doctor. And from the time he was very young, he was taken and involved in practices through adolescence, even into a young man. Practices I cannot mention in this room publicly. It was the demonic, it was dark, it was very dark. And Arnold said, despite my appearance, my demeanor, the way I would act... He said, the darkness that controlled me, he said, which was unimaginable. He said, there was this person in our community that came to know Christ and they began to love me. They began to share the gospel with me. He said, for the first time in my entire life, he said, I came to understand and hear the story of Jesus. And he said, in that moment, he said, there was such love pouring from this individual into my own life. He said, all of the darkness and the demonic power that had always controlled me, he said, began to be released in that very moment. And he said, before I knew it, he said, I was then controlled by a different power. And in his words, he said, and my imagination came to life. I knew why I was really created. Arnold was discipled in the faith, called into ministry like Reuben, came to our Bible school. He has also earned his BA and MA scholarship by our ministry. He has planted six churches. The one he now oversees runs over a thousand members. And he works beside Reuben, multiplying himself, training young men and women for the ministry because we need more Arnolds. I would say that's significance. Hallelujah. Do you see Michael Kaliwa in the blue with my arm around his shoulder? You wouldn't have liked Michael before he knew Jesus, and he probably wouldn't have liked you. Michael was hardened, he was a victim. Lome tribe. He was raised in an environment where life was really not fair. And it hardened him. It hardened him to everyone in his life, from his wife to his children to the people in his community. He was a man filled with anger and hatred. But Michael will tell you that when I was an older young man, he said someone began to love on me unconditionally, began just to share the gospel with me in ways that I have never known in my life. And he said, no matter how I acted towards this person, they would never give up on me. 
And he said, before long in this moment of encounter, they began to share how God had changed their heart. And when I began to hear their story, he said, I knew that that was then available for me as well. And before I even knew it, he said, as hard as I was, as angry as I was, all of that hatred that had controlled my life, the way I had acted out to everyone in my community, he said, I found myself for the first time in my life as a man sobbing unconditionally. I couldn't stop crying. He said, what happened is is God's love in that moment had rushed away and chased away my anger and he said I was changed Michael was discipled called into ministry he was trained and today I will tell you without hesitation that if you're walking through a hard time and you don't want anyone to judge you or condemn you but be your advocate be your champion Michael is your man Significance. See, for every single person in here, this is really what it comes down to, individually and collectively. And I don't care this morning if you're a dental hygienist or a plumber, an electrician or a professional. It doesn't matter if you're a student or a school teacher or you're the primary caretaker for your family. That for every one of you, you bring unique gifts and experiences and backgrounds that God wants to use. And some of you in this room probably even battle and struggle inwardly with your own self-image. Whether anyone could truly love you, much less God. But this morning, this is exactly what God wants us to understand. Because if God is able to get a hold of your life, for you to align everything about who you are with his redemptive purposes in life, then what happens is, is the focus becomes less less about you and more through what God wants to do through you in the world. Because self-esteem doesn't come through me trying to find more self-importance but through my esteem of what God is already doing in the world redemptively and opening up my life to become part of that and then making sure that I'm aligned and positioned to flow so that in my own unique way, wherever I am in life, including here in Sarasota, that God will use you to touch the life of others so that they don't just find significance and meaning in life but they exercise that so that others find significance as well so what's stopping you I mean really what's keeping you back why are you hesitant what area of your life have you not really surrendered to God so that you are intentional you are conscious about ensuring that every day you get up no matter what you do vocationally, no matter what hobbies, no matter what activities fill your calendar, that you are intentional about engaging this world so that you can see God's redemptive purposes flow through you as well. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 
You know, I, I just sense right now, I just sense that there are some people in this room that you have really struggled about your own image. And you hear what I'm saying, and there's a part of that that excites you, but there's been so much damage that you've experienced in life. And I just want to take a moment to challenge you, to provoke you, to take a risk. Because God is waiting for you to run to His love. Be changed by His grace. Because He does want to change you. But He wants to change you for you to be able to find true significance in this life in a way that really means being His instrument of blessing. Would you stand with me right now? I look at you and I see an amazing family of people. Church of Hope. I like the name. Oh, that God would use all of us to bring more hope to Sarasota and the world. Can you say amen? you want to surrender to God's love this morning and say, Lord, change me, but also use me as part of your redemptive purpose in the world. Would you just lift your hands to him as a sign of that surrenderance all over this place? Just yield your heart. Oh, Lord, I just pray in Jesus' name that for every individual in this place this morning, that, Lord, that our hearts are so yielded, surrendered to you right now in this moment that this is our encounter. And like Arnold and Reuben and Michael, like Riaz, oh God, help us to align our affections and our heart with your redemptive purpose in our community and in the world. Use us, oh Lord. Heal us. And bring us to the points in which, Lord, we are mindful and active to take who we are uniquely to be a blessing to those you've placed in our life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let the church say amen. Let's express our appreciation to John and Cheryl, the great work with Africa's Hope. Thank you. We love you so much. And Man, it, it's your generosity that allows us to partner with great, great ministries like this. I'm going to lead in one prayer. It's a life-changing prayer. It's a prayer that says yes to God, some for the first time, some for the first time in a long time. You begin to understand your value and your significance when you walk with the Lord. The greatest prayer you can pray with God is yes. Yes, God, yes. Whatever you yes, what you want. So here's a prayer that says yes to God. I'm going to ask you just to pray it out loud with me. God loves to hear your voice. He says, I want you to believe in your heart. John has said many great things. Believe it in your heart. Now confess it with your mouth. As we say, dear Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. And I open my heart, my life, my soul to Jesus Christ. I repent of my sins. And I receive your grace, your love, your forgiveness, your mercy. Thank you, God, for loving me. Now help me to love you.
every single day of my life. To the glory of God, in Jesus' name, hallelujah, 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 amen. That's a, a great prayer of faith. That prayer will change your life. And if you're saying yes to God for the first time or for the first time in a long time, two things just to connect. One is you can stop by the VIP room back on the left-hand side and just say, hey, I'm just saying yes to God. If you're a guest today, we'd love you to stop by the VIP room because that room's for you. You are a VIP. We'd like to give you some gifts. You can also text in very easily. Just take your phone out. You're saying yes to God. Text the word yes to 941-260-1321, and we'll start a dialogue. We'll get you some material that will help you to grow in God's plan for your life, which is much better than your plan. Mm. I'm getting ready to preach, you know, but you've already had enough probably. You've already had enough. I'm going to pray a blessing. And then uh, I'd love you to stop by in the lobby, connect with some small group leaders. I'd love you to find a place so you're not just coming and sitting on weekends, but you're growing in grace with brothers and sisters, and that's so important. So now I bless you in the strong, mighty, and majestic name of Jesus. And in Jesus' name, you are very blessed. And all of God's people say, amen. God bless you guys. We love you so much. Stop by the tables out in the lobby. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week.